0: The passage Corey read from Isaiah chapter 49, and as he said in the evening worship, we're looking at the servant songs of uh, Isaiah, uh, which really speak to us, tell us more about Jesus than even the New Testament does in some ways. Uh, gives us insight into the mind and the thinking of Jesus, and it's good a good follow-on from this morning where we're speaking about having a servant heart, and of course the ultimate servant is the Lord Jesus Christ, and these are called the servant songs. And I hope they allow it to speak into your circumstances and into your heart this evening uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together also. Now, just by way of introduction, you remember, and uh, Cody will have have put everything uh, into its context already, but this, uh, Isaiah was written in a time, or Isaiah wrote, prophesied in a time of chaos, uh, really, times of political, social, and spiritual turmoil and uh, He he mentioned, I know because I listened to it, that uh, uh, he spoke about the the kingdoms, uh, Israel and Judah, having split apart uh, by this stage. And the northern kingdom had already fallen to Assyria, uh, that great world power. Judah was much smaller, and it was surrounded by uh, threatening world powers. And it was all political and also spiritually linked in together. And eventually, uh, their idolatry and their faithlessness brought them into exile themselves. They lost the heritage of the promised land, and they were exiled into Babylon uh, after Isaiah's time. But right through Isaiah's time, these people were unwilling to put their trust uh, in God, the covenant God who had redeemed uh, their forefathers from slavery in Egypt and uh, brought them into relationship with him. Uh, sometimes they would rather go to a, just a, a one of the other nations round about them to try and be strong, one of the nations like Egypt, but every, because everything seemed stacked against them. But they had no sense of peace in anything they did. And it's interesting, uh, the, the last verse of the previous chapter that we read, uh, God speaking, and he says, "'There is no peace, says the Lord, uh, for the wicked.'" And then at the end of another section, at the end of chapter 57, exactly the same words, nine, eight chapters later, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So, there's this lack of peace, okay? And we can relate sometimes to that whole concept of a lack of peace in our lives, uh, and sometimes a spiritual lack of peace. So, the theme of the whole book is to come back to the living God. That That's the message— as a people, they had turned away from God. And so he's saying, coming back. Come back, rather. Because turning away from God—and this is very relevant and up-to-date—turning away from God as Christians in our lives, and for this people, is never the answer. God's committed to them. God's in covenant with them. And he says, please, start listening again. See the ugliness and the danger of wandering away from me as nations, as a nation, and as individuals. Um, And of course, that message." Uh, maybe not so much for nations, but, but for individuals within nations. It's this great uh, ongoing, relevant challenge, both to us as Christians or if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. The only place of absolute peace for you, the only peace for us in our lives of internal peace and security, is to recognize that we're to come back to God, put him first in our lives, worship and serve him with his recognizing who he is. And as Christians— we, have a, we sit here tonight, and we sit with a great weight on our shoulders that we are bought with a price. We are redeemed by the living God, and He's always encouraging that the Lord's Supper is always a great time because it's an encouragement to come back, to return to the Lord for who He is. So I want to, just for a moment this evening, briefly, if I can, to look at God's Redeemer as He's um, highlighted in the passage we read, uh, He—we are— we have here a prophecy of a servant of the Lord who's going to come and bring back the people, redeem them, and be their Savior. Now, in a, in a, uh, in a physical way, uh, in, a, in a, uh, a, a small way, uh, that was uh, in a short-term way, as it were, uh, that was going to be a p- political Savior who was going to come and, and be the means by which they would come back to uh, Jerusalem, back to the promised land king called Cyrus was going to bring them. But it's a much bigger picture here of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we have, I think as Corey mentioned last week, unparalleled insight into Jesus Christ in these servant songs from Isaiah written hundreds of, of years before Jesus lived. And it, it says here at the beginning that Jesus, uh, that the servant uh, is the one who is going to be called uh, Israel. Uh, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So we have this name given to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. And we have this pointing forward by looking back. Because you know who Israel was? Israel was a nation. But before Israel was a nation, Israel was a person. Uh, Jacob was renamed uh, Israel. Do you remember when he was renamed Israel? It was when he wrestled with God at Bethel. So you will no longer be called uh, Jacob, you'll be called Israel, because you have wrestled with God, you've contended with God, you've fought with God, uh, and you've overcome this amazing passage. And so uh, Israel, Jacob, had this great weight on his shoulder of carrying forward the promises made to Abraham, uh, right through uh, to uh, him and his uh, those descendants after him. And he knew about God's commitment to save a people, Israel. And yet Israel, the nation, had up to this point just stumbled and fallen and fell, uh, had let down their their God. They uh, needed a Redeemer. They needed a Savior. They couldn't live up to what God demanded. Jacob couldn't live up to what God demanded, even uh, as the one who wrestled with God. There was to be a true representative Jesus Christ, the servant who would be called Israel, who would be the representative of his people. And he would be, he was called from the womb, as we're told in verse 1, the body of my mother, uh, uh, he named my name, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Speaking of this redeemer who would come, uh, who would uh, be the represent, the incarnate son of God, who'd be the representative of his people, born of a woman, a servant a slave, as Corey mentioned last week. Servant's a kind of gentle, nice f- phrase in a sense, but Jesus was this great servant-slave uh, in whom God would reveal his glory, who would display his splendor. And a slave? in the lowest of the low? It's a unique designation of the servant king who would come, who would submit as a servant, as the sin-bearer, who would, as it were, wrestle with God, uh, taking his own name, Israel, on behalf of his people, speaking reverently and carefully there, uh, with a divine willingness that he would stand and be the one who would be our Savior and and our Lord. Because it goes on to speak of him uh, as being uh, the light of the world, uh, the one uh, who uh, uh, God has led to be in this amazing position uh, of the ruler and the light of the world. He uh, uh, is so significant. I can find it. Um, recognized, in verses 4 to 7, it speaks of him, uh, I have labored. Oh, no, no. Sorry, I've got the wrong verse now. Yeah, sorry. Verse 6, the end of verse 6. I was I was—I prepared this in a different Bible, uh, different pages, and it always confuses me. I should learn. I should learn to use the same one I used. Okay. I will make you as a light to the nations at the end of verse 6, that the salvation may reach the end of the earth. So you've got this great recognition of of the servant of the Lord who's coming as the light of the world, who who wrestled uh, with a perfect despondency uh, before uh, the living God— and who recognized that uh, he was in this great position uh, of being the same. In verse 4, he says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with my God. And he was despised, as we've spoken of here, and abhorred. And it, it reminds me of uh, um, his cry for Jerusalem. When he cries for Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I longed for you. A mother hen longed for to gather her chicken under her wings, but you were not willing. Uh, and yet, in that rejection, that almost despondency, he recognized and knew that God had a purpose. And God was speaking to him and saying, so you're the light of the world. You will not just, re- you'll not just restore Judah, but you will be for the whole uh, of the world it's not enough for you just to be the servant of my people, but you will be uh, a justice and a savior for the whole of the world, and you are honored and chosen. You are the covenant God, and uh, there is this uh, great covenant, new covenant, uh, in his blood that we recognize and we see and uh, we know. So, he's the light of the world He's the one that offers restoration, speaks here about the end of desolation, that he'll set them free and that they will know him and uh, rejoice in him uh, for who he is and for what he's done. I know I've turned two pages, that's why I'm struggling so badly. Um, In my time of favor, I answered you, and the Dave said, I helped you. I will keep you, and you'll be a covenant for my people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. He's going to be this covenant uh, for his people. Uh, which we will remember when we say, this is a new covenant uh, in my blood. The covenant is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he offers this great uh, recognition and hope and restoration. And verse 13, it tells us that he inspires praise. Shout for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. He will have compassion on his afflicted. So there's this great sense of rejoicing and a recognition of his comfort and his compassion. So it speaks in general terms of what he's coming to do and uh, how important and significant he is. And I'm sorry, I completely lost my place there when I was looking at the wrong chapter. So I'm going to close that bit, okay? And I'm going to go on to, uh, just as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, We recognize that this speaks of Jesus Christ and it speaks of who he is and his relationship to the Father. And there's this ongoing conversation, as it were, between God the Father and God the Son in this passage uh, that we looked at very briefly. Uh, And we've got this great picture of a covenant, caring, uh, uh, servant, uh, light, uh, redeemer who brings hope and who brings healing and who brings satisfaction Uh, provision and guidance on our way home. I don't have time to go into more of that. But before we sit down at the Lord's Supper, uh, I want to ask what your your response is to this picture and the picture that Corey gave last week of uh, Jesus Christ as God's servant and the description it gives here, which I haven't really uh, described uh, well in any sense whatsoever. But is it uh, generally, when we look at God's Word and we come to God's Word, do we find uh, His Word encouraging? Do we find these pictures inspiring? Uh, do we, or do we find them irrelevant? Because I think it's interesting uh, to see the response of God's own people that we have in this chapter. Their response isn't great uh, to uh, this comfort, this prophecy of comfort that Isaiah brings to them. Remember, they're beleaguered, They feel uh, things are difficult. They need to return to the Lord. And Isaiah gives them this great picture of the God who will redeem and who will save them. And their response in verse 14 is, the Lord has forsaken me. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. It's underwhelming, isn't it? And is is that the response we have to the living God at at the core of your heart? at the core of your life, do you look to God and say, well, the Lord—I think the Lord has just abandoned me. I think He—I feel alone. I feel unspiritual. I feel it's much easier to trust things that I can see and feel and touch that are there tangibly. God is distant from me. Despite these words that have been given in prophecy, He's just far away, uh, and I think often our response can be the same as Zion, the people of Judah's response to the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. So just before we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, can I just remind you of the promise he goes on to give in verses 15 to 18, both to them and also to us. There are tr- tremendous uh, pictures uh, to think about when you're at the Lord's table. However difficult your circumstances may be tonight, however cold you feel may feel, your heart is towards God. We have here God, as it were, just simply trying to explain how much He cares, how much He loves. Have you ever been in that position with someone who doesn't believe you about how much you love them? And you try and explain, you try and put into words just how much you love them, and you try and make it as clear and as as passionate as possible. That's, that's exactly what God is doing here. He's, he's seen the response that, well, they just say, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And so he responds to them with a couple of great pictures to say, no, that's not the case. Please remember how much I care and how much I love you in your lives. And he uses a picture of a nursing mother Um of a, can I say it, a tattooed, engraved hand uh, and also uh, the walls being before me. And I'll just explain them very briefly. This great maternal picture we have of the living God. Can a mother, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on, in verse 15, the son of her womb, even though she may forget, yet I will never forget you. So, it's that maternal image, again, it's it's used in the Bible quite often. The closest of all human links, really, isn't it, in many ways, that unique bond between the nursing mother and her child that she has birthed. She has birthed a life as flesh of my flesh. And there's this incredibly close and unique bond between mother and son and daughter and God's using that picture. And he said, that's a human picture that you understand and you can see. And he said, but even if, even if a mother would, and because that happens, a mother sometimes mothers do forget their children, and, and fathers forget their children. Remarkably, how could that be the case? But they do. And he said, even though they may forget, yet never will I forget you. God says, you are born, and as a Christian, you're born twice from me. I have born you twice. I've born you once in creation, and I'm, I've rebirthed you in salvation. I've paid. I've I've borne the, the cost, uh, the birth pangs of salvation on the cross. I've paid the greatest of prices so that you can you can be born anew, born afresh, born again. And He, I've given you spiritual life. So we have this great picture of the Redeemer, who for us all this evening has given us a new life who's rebirthed us, and uh, as such, has created us, recreated us in his uh, image. What a great promise. God says, look, I'll never forget you. I I can't possibly forget you. Whatever you're going through, please don't feel. Whatever it might be that it's because God has forgotten you, it may be that we don't understand, but he hasn't forgotten. He loves you, he loves you with this great, unique bond. What a great promise to take with us tonight and to meditate on at the table. But also he goes on to to uh, further describe he says behold i 've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Uh, we are in great he says i 've engraved you. This is a, a tremendously strong picture of commitment of god 's commitment to us. The divine hands are the, the picture of his uh, strength and of his activity. You know, all that he does comes through his his hands, as it were, the, the, the great source of, of his power and of his work. And he's therefore saying, all that I do, all that I sovereignly ordain to happen, I do so with you in mind, because you, you're right before me uh, as I work. Uh, we're engraved Uh, in the palms of his hand, uh, this tremendously strong uh, picture that he gives us, uh, hewn, as it were, into his hands, this image of his people always before him. So, even in the brokenness of the world in which we live, and maybe the brokenness of your experiences and of your life, he's saying, I will take them, because I'm sovereign and I'm king, and I will use them as you come uh, under my shadow and in my wings, he says, I will use them for good and for glory uh, in your life. His palms. It, it's as he works, uh, his palms are facing him. It's a, it's a picture. It's a, the word is engraved, strong picture, costly, deliberate, uh, permanent. And it, I think it ought to make us think of his nail-pierced hands as a symbol of his work on our behalf. Thomas says, I, I doubt you. I doubt you. I doubt you are the risen Savior. Come, Thomas, look at my nail-pierced hands. There's this great uh, physical uh, emblem of the cost of our salvation, uh, and it's always before him. And we are always before He's, There's never a moment when his people are not the focus and the center of his attention, which is a great comfort and a great reality. And he goes on, thirdly, to say, uh, your walls uh, were continually before me. He's speaking there of Jerusalem, you know, the the great city of God and and, and the walls. And You know, these walls would soon be broken down. They'd be broken down and wrecked because they'd abandoned the city or they, they were taken captivity from the city. And the beautiful city of God would be in ruins, and uh, yet it's all, its kind of this picture that God has—that His beloved, His beloved Jerusalem. He doesn't see these broken-down walls. He doesn't see what the destroyers have done, and what is laid waste. But He says, "I see the, i see the walls. I see the finished picture. Uh, I see uh, the new Jerusalem coming down." Uh, out of heaven as a bride prepared for a bridegroom. Not the broken down walls of defeat and separation and uh, destruction. He sees what we will be. He sees that finished city, uh, that finished work, that that beautiful prepared place that uh, he has already uh, made ready for us. And often we're worried about our our future aren't we well well will i be in five years time will i be in 10 years time what will my christian life be like what will happen when i get old what happens after i get old what happens when i die all these questions and he's saying look a nursing mother i'll never forget you you're there you're always there and, and i see the finished picture i see way beyond even the grave i have all these things great words of comfort and great words of protection and they are intensely personal for us. And we recognize that this is a picture of the Redeemer uh, who is our Redeemer and our Savior and our Lord. And we remember him this evening and uh, we remember him around the table. And I hope you'll just take time to uh, think on these great pictures which he wants to convince us of who he is and of his care and of, of his love and of his protection and I, I do implore you uh in your christian life if you are far from him if you doubt him if you're drifting from him hear his great words and come back to him. this is the place of safety and security in his company in his presence uh under his word with his people uh prayerfully following him as lord and savior and may the lord's supper be a time for you if that's the case of returning to him